0: Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof podcast. Episode number eight, Sandra Thompson, Cops in Lab Coats. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Cheng from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year this week our guest is sandy thompson sandy is the alumnae professor of law and the director of the criminal justice institute at the university of houston law center sandy teaches criminal law criminal procedure and evidence and she writes on a wide range of related topics including eyewitness identification wrongful conviction and jury discrimination Her recent book, Cops in Lab Coats, Curbing Wrongful Convictions Through Independent Forensic Laboratories, was published by Carolina Academic Press and provides a comprehensive look at the problems surrounding forensics. The book discusses the reasons for forensic errors, including the lack of scientific foundations, the entanglement of crime labs with police, and cognitive bias on the part of analysts. It also chronicles the creation of Houston's Independent Forensic Lab, where Sandy is a founding member of the Board of Directors. Many of you are surely familiar with at least parts of the National Academy of Sciences' report on forensics. Sandy's book takes the discussion an additional and important step forward. Sandy, thanks a lot for agreeing to be on Excited Utterance.
1: Thanks for having me, Ed.
0: Before we dive into the substance of your book, I was wondering if you could give us a little context to your work. So in addition, of course, to being an academic, You've been a member of the board of the Houston Forensic Science Center. Could you tell us a little about your work in that capacity and how it's influenced your work on the book?
1: I was appointed four years ago to the inaugural board, the founding board of directors. And I was really excited because I knew enough about the situation with crime labs and the National Academy of Studies recommendation for independence to realize that this was a unique opportunity. And for the last four years, really, I've devoted most of my research effort to this subject.
0: The book is extremely comprehensive, and it touches on almost every aspect of forensics reform. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to focus the discussion on crime lab independence. I think crime lab independence is what is emphasized not only in the subtitle of the book, but I think it's also the dominant theme. So let's start first with the need for crime lab independence. Why do we need separation of police crime labs from the police themselves?
1: What I have come to appreciate is that it's critically important for many reasons, perhaps the greatest being that, organizationally, it doesn't make sense to have a police chief overseeing a scientific laboratory. And when laboratories are a part of the organizational structure of a police department or a federal agency that's law enforcement, inevitably, and this is, you know, demonstrated nationwide, the labs just don't get the kind of funding that they need to do the kind of work that they're expected to do. So you have problems of people who don't have the right credentials, adequate credentials to be doing what they're doing, inadequate training. The equipment is expensive. The kind of facilities you need are expensive. There are so many costs to do forensic science well, and the labs just haven't been supported properly.
0: Why would making the labs independent increase the funding and the resources available to the labs?
1: That's a great question. And, you know, I think one of the things that we have found is that a big part of the vision for our board of directors was that we would have a group of community volunteers who would be overseeing this laboratory and acting within the governance structure as the voice for the laboratory. In effect, the lab has a much stronger presence within the city of Houston and its governance because of the board of directors. It comes to the front of the line now rather than being one of the subcategories of the police department budget. And I think that is a really important facet of what we do. But, you know, a bigger part and the part that's more obvious to most people, I think, is the concerns about motivational and cognitive bias in crime labs. And we have taken some really extraordinary measures here with this unique lab in Houston to try to eliminate or at least drastically reduce those kinds of biases.
0: I think there's no doubt that most of us feel that objectivity is going to be improved with independence and there's going to be better opportunity for blinding. That solution, though, to the crime lab problem seems awfully scientific in nature rather than from a, say, legal perspective. So to the extent that our legal system is an adversarial one, shouldn't the safeguard be adversarial testing rather than the hope of the neutrality or objectivity of an independent lab. In many ways, what I'm asking is, why isn't the solution to our crime lab problem a separate crime lab for the public defenders as opposed to an independent crime lab?
1: I sort of break your question up a little bit, if you don't mind. Why a scientific remedy rather than a purely legal remedy. And I think the answer to that is we already tried that, right? And so the National Academy of Sciences was very clear and really reserved some of its harshest criticism for the judiciary and their hands-off approach with regard to the admission of forensic evidence that was really very poor to terrible. So the judicial system has not worked. And frankly, lawyers are not scientists, and if public defenders don't have the resources to hire their own experts to challenge the crime labs analysts, they're really at a loss. To even understand the problems that may lurk within a lab report It's very challenging for individual lawyers. There are many different kinds of forensic science, and these lab reports have not been very complete or very clear. So putting that sort of burden on public defenders, we already tried that. They don't have the resources and it hasn't worked. And that's why we've had so many wrongful convictions. Should they have their own crime lab? I've never heard anyone ask that. It's sort of an interesting proposition. And I'm not sure what you would really get from having a separate crime lab. In many situations, you really don't have the ability. I suppose the idea would be that the defense could retest, right? That they would run their own tests. But that would require obtaining samples of the evidence from the police crime lab, which often is not possible. So, in many cases, it's just not going to be possible for the defense to conduct its own forensic testing. And even if they tried, for example, in, say, in Leighton Prince, if we tried to set up a defense lab, to do that kind of work. We'd have to cultivate a lot more experts because we really don't have enough. There's no one really in the private industry. I mean, most of the people who do this kind of work work for law enforcement. So I don't really see that being a realistic possibility.
0: I see two responses here that you gave. One is the practical consideration, which is how would evidence transfer between the police lab and the defense lab. This is not like the usual legal materials that we would expect sharing between the two parties. And I think the other thing I see from your answer is one of politics in many ways. To the extent that public defenders don't have enough resources already, you can't expect anyone to fund a separate laboratory for the defense. And because the prosecution doesn't even have enough resources for the crime lab at the moment, you're definitely not going to get that on the other end.
1: Right, that's correct. That leads us then to a real need to improve the quality of forensic science. And I think we've seen a national effort to try to elevate the practice of forensic science nationwide because our leaders are recognizing that the state of affairs is poor to terrible. That's what the National Academy of Sciences report indicated. And that's where our focus has been in Houston is to try to really take seriously the recommendation to make the lab independent and improve the quality of the science so that what happens in the courts isn't as important. What
0: you have in Houston is, I dare say, rather unique. I think In the rest of the country, at least as I gather from your book and from my own experience, there's been a lot of resistance and foot-dragging with regard to reform. Why is there so much resistance to reform in this area? Is it just inertia or entrenchment? Or is there something more fundamental to the problem that is making it very difficult to solve?
1: It's hard for me to say what motivates so many people in the industry, but I think we do have to recognize that there have been lab scandals in 31 states. So the state of affairs is not very good. Sort of stands to reason, I think, then, that there may be some resistance to really shining a light on what's going on in these departments. But even beyond that, I think one of the things I highlight in the book is There have been some really high-profile cases of fraud by some forensic scientists who I believe are really a tiny, tiny fraction of the overall workforce in forensic science. But there's some resistance because some people at least are offended by what they may view as an accusation on their industry that they're not ethical. One of the things I try to demonstrate is that concerns about cognitive bias really have nothing to do with ethics per se. And that the need for independent labs really should not be taken as an insult or what have you. It, we're really just talking about trying to do science the way it should be done.
0: In addition to what you have in Houston, are there other instances in which communities or cities have moved toward independent labs in a successful way?
1: The state of Virginia, their state labs were made independently. Nassau County, I believe, also was taken out of the police department. Washington, D.C. set up a relatively new lab. They didn't really have much of a lab, but they set theirs up also to be independent. And we've had visitors from police departments around the country who have come to Houston to learn more about what we're doing. Most recently, the city of San Francisco, there was a grand jury there that made a determination that their laboratory should be made independent because of problems in San Francisco. So it's bubbling up in a lot of places, but still it's, we're really just talking about a couple of handfuls at most.
0: What do you think are the things that we can do to force or at least push the system in the direction of independent labs? Presumably, it seems that it can't come from courts. You stated before that Courts have never been very good at policing this. It also seems as a practical matter, courts declaring non-independent forensic evidence inadmissible seems like a rather drastic measure. It ends up destroying cases that are currently on the docket. It creates gaps in evidence. So there must be some other mechanism to push this along, or is this really a matter of politics?
1: I think it's maybe a product of both civil rights lawsuits or just the politics of scandals and what have you. In Houston, it was a combination of a very high-profile lawsuit that I chronicle in the book, the George Rodriguez case, which resulted in a multi-million dollar verdict against the city, and a lot of embarrassment that went along with it because it was so high-profile. But that combined with just the constant flow of negative publicity from the ongoing scandals in the lab ultimately led the city to want to do something more drastic, more permanent, to get the Houston Police Department out of the business of trying to run the lab. It's Not a very good answer to your question. I don't know what it's going to take in other cities, but I suspect it's going to be something similar, which is to say scandal and the politics that follow from that and the lawsuits
0: In many ways, this is what worries me a bit. The story you tell about Houston is a somewhat uplifting one. It's a successful one in which Houston was able to establish its own independent lab. On the other hand, it seemed that it was driven by a rather anomalous, hopefully anomalous, set of circumstances where you have not only a fraud scandal but widespread public disapproval of the crime lab. So you have to have something that is so pervasively problematic that the city will actually take action. The worry I have is that, boy, you have to actually wait for this kind of thing to occur before you can get reform in other places.
1: Well, that's right. I share your concern. I really do. Part of my purpose in writing the book was to try to encourage stakeholders at different levels of government to consider this option and to be able to envision what that would look like. Because I think that was really one of the challenges with the National Academy's recommendation is, you know, we didn't really know what it would take to do this. But the second chapter of my book talks about how this crisis in forensic science has really been a national problem. And Houston is unique, but it's not the only place. Like I say, Virginia had Tremendous scandals that led to its state police being made independent. Nassau County, New York, just horrendous scandals, and I chronicle a lot of these. We're talking 31 states, and the kinds of wrongful convictions you get in these cases tend to be really serious crimes. With extremely long sentences, there were 11 death sentences and over 150 sentences of 60 years and more in the exonerations that I studied that were largely based on false or misleading forensic science.
0: One of the other concerns I have about the move toward independent labs, or at least the foot-dragging that I see with the move to independent labs, is that it reminds me a bit of the situation with court-appointed experts There's this book by Tal Golan that he published probably about 10 years ago entitled Laws of Men and Laws of Nature, where he chronicles the rise of expert witnesses and the problems of them since they were first introduced about 200 years ago. And the thing that struck me about the story is that there's a cycle where people express outrage about the biased nature of experts, and then reformers and scientists suggest, and they set up systems to promote court-appointed neutral experts. And the analogy, of course, I think you can see, which is that here you have people being outraged at the biased nature of the experts, in this case, the forensic analysts at the police labs. And the move, which both you and the National Academy of Sciences have opted for, is toward a more neutral expert system, which is the independent lab. The concern is, of course, that the reason why court-appointed experts have never taken off is that they seem antithetical to the adversarial system, and maybe in some ways the independent experts or the independent crime labs also seem antithetical to the adversary system. Does it worry you that you have this kind of dynamic?
1: Yeah, I don't think we do, actually. So I'm not sure the analogy quite holds up, because one thing we have to be clear about is this lab is independent of law enforcement. However, in court, these analysts who work for the Houston Forensic Science Center still testify on behalf of the prosecution and they do that almost exclusively. We are actually doing some defense work which virtually no crime lab does any kind of work for the defense, but we do some, but most of our work is still for the Houston Police Department. So they do testify on behalf of the state. Now, how do the prosecutors feel about it? How do the defense attorneys feel about it? To be honest, I think that overall, they're happier with the state of affairs. The lab has been built up to be really a national model, and it's extremely efficient. It gets its work done quickly. Lab reports are complete and include bench notes and available. We just started an online portal so that litigants can access their lab reports. There's a quality of service that's coming out of this lab that they've never seen before. So I think, if anything, they're going to be happier about this and perhaps want to see more labs like it.
0: Tell me a little bit more about those bench notes. In your book, you talk a little bit about how, with respect to forensic reports, that confrontation is not really the end-all, be-all. You suggest that having discovery or having other mechanisms by which the defense can get at what are the weaknesses in the forensic evidence, that kind of information is just as important as confrontation.
1: Yes, and perhaps more so. In the past, defense attorneys, when they did get lab reports, they would be highly conclusory, language was not clearly defined, a lot of the issues that are being addressed at a national level right now and trying to get access to things like standard operating procedures and the analysts' underlying bench notes was next to impossible. We're providing all of that. It's not an easy task. You can imagine the number of drug cases that are prosecuted in Houston. It's a huge number. And bench notes in drug testing are substantial. So trying to get all of this automated and available online. We're doing toxicology for DWI cases. I mean, this is a big accomplishment.
0: Do you see that as a function of the independence of the lab that you are able to get these bench notes or this additional disclosure of information?
1: I do because The Houston Lab is really unique in that it operates in a completely transparent way. We have public meetings. Our meetings are videotaped and placed online. And the lab directors, who are really have national reputations, they give very complete reports. So it's a very transparent operation. And with regard to making information available to the litigants, this is something our board has demanded. The chairwoman of the board is an expert in wrongful convictions. She's an attorney. And all of us really in different ways have the same kind of goal, which is to make this lab work for the entire criminal justice system to ensure that there are no wrongful convictions that flow from any work done in that lab. And I think having that kind of orientation is really unique. So in crime labs, they work for police departments. It's a very different kind of orientation. And these are labs that are highly secretive and not inclined to share information with the defense.
0: Sandy, a final question before we wrap up. You've obviously written an incredibly comprehensive book here, but I would guess that there are some issues or topics that you didn't have the time or the space to cover in the way you wanted. After this book, where is the space for further work in this area, either for you or, say, an aspiring young academic out there who wants to make a name for him or herself?
1: You know, I think one place where I would look is at the United States Forensic Science Commission and the work that they're doing. They're putting out reports and asking for comments on these reports and I think the topics that are being discussed at a national level, topics that I touch on like what are the limits of testimony in different forensic fields and what kind of rules should we have in court for the kind of conclusions that experts should be allowed to give. I think that's a critical area because a lot of the science that has been done hasn't been bad for example in the latent print discipline. I would dare to say that most of the work done in those labs, at least by experienced examiners, is very good. But it's a whole different matter when you talk about the kinds of conclusions that they draw from their examinations. And that's where there's so much room for for thought and trying to advance the field. And then I would say part two of my book, which would be what's the next step? Because yeah, the Houston lab is off and running, but there continue to be challenges. And sustaining an independent lab is another area that I think would be of great interest.
0: Well, Sandy, thanks so much for coming on the show and for all the work you've done in improving the forensic field. I know the legal system is more fair and more accurate as a result of it.
1: Thanks, Ed. It was my pleasure.
0: By Sandy's account, the Houston Forensic Science Center is an inspiring and encouraging success story. Out of the scandal and controversy that enveloped Houston's previous crime lab, there is now an independent one leading the charge for forensics reform. After the interview, Sandy even mentioned that the Houston lab now does blind verification of results, one of the first, if not the first, to do so in the forensic world. But as the interview segment suggested, one of the great worries is that Houston is an anomaly Its independent lab is the product of special circumstances, of scandals that we would otherwise prefer not to repeat. The question we are thus left with is whether other crime labs in other cities can make the transition without crisis. That will be the trick for forensic reformers going forward. Sandy's new book motivates and breathes new life into that effort. Her ability to weave interesting narrative, hard-nosed academic analysis, and real-world experience make her book both a great read and a comprehensive resource for people working on these problems in forensics in the years to come. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. Research assistance for this episode was provided by Alex Nunn. Production assistance was provided by Carson Smith. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.